It's time to accelerate. Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 752 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. As always, I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Joining me this week as my guest is Lisa Magnuson. Lisa is the author of a very useful book titled The Top Sales Leader Playbook, How to Win 5X Deals Repeatedly. So today we're going to be talking about selling big deals. In particular, about updating your sales playbooks to enable you to identify, qualify, and close significantly bigger deals on a consistent basis. And among the topics Lisa and I are going to dive into today is why you have to do things differently when you're targeting these big deals, these 5X sales deals. Your old sales playbook just won't cut it anymore. We'll talk about why you need to learn to execute your processes more effectively to win big deals. And when you do, I have a trickle-down effect on all the sales opportunities you're working on because it makes your whole sales team better. And Lisa will also share the reasons why, if you plan to pursue 5X deals, you first must nurture a culture of accountability within your organization. Because winning big deals is more about having the right sales structure than just having superstar sellers. So we'll be getting into all that much, much more. But before we get to Lisa, I'd like to quickly talk to you about RingDNA. RingDNA is the leading revenue acceleration platform that uses AI to help businesses scale revenue growth. They offer a complete solution for sales engagement. That means you can call, text, email, automate sales cadences, effectively coach your sellers, and more, all from one tool. Only with a complete integrated platform can you supercharge rep productivity and optimize peak sales performance. You can learn all about this at RingDNA, about RingDNA, at ringdna.com forward slash Andy. That is ringdna.com forward slash Andy. And while you're there, download RingDNA's free research report titled the 2020 Sales Prospecting Performance Report. It's full of actionable insights to help you build your sales pipeline, including data on the best time of day to call your prospects, optimal first call conversation links, and much, much more. So you can get your copy again today at ringdna.com forward slash Andy. That's ringdna.com forward slash Andy. Okay, let's jump into it. Lisa, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you. Well, it's nice to have you. You're joining us from where today? I'm joining you from the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Specifically Portland, Portland, right? Portland, Oregon. Yes. Portland, Oregon. Great food truck town. So true. <laughs> Remember the last time I was there a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, somewhere a square somewhere, it seemed like, that was just ringed with, uh, with food trucks. It was, yeah. 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 Hard, and Hard decision. Uh, what the- and we have multiple uh, pods of food trucks yeah. now. Uh, probably started out kind of with one pod, but have become so popular that uh, they just have have grown exponentially. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think the sort of food truck thing sort of really started there. I think to some degree. So, yeah, beautiful place to be from. So uh, we're here to talk about big deals today. Yes, big deals. Love to talk about big deals. Big deals, <laughs> and specifically your book, the top. Sales Leader Playbook, How to Win 5X Deals Repeatedly. So what was the what was the impetus to write this book? Well, you know, I have been really spent my whole career um, interested and involved with big deals and, and specifically as a as a consultant for the last 15 years mm-hmm. uh, with my company Top Line Sales, my niche is really big deals. Um, 
But specifically to write the book, I, I, I went out and I interviewed 41 sales VPs and I asked them, these were live interviews and I asked them, you know, about their goals and their priorities and about how they approach big deals and, and about what they would want to see in a playbook. And it changed the book that I wrote. Um, they had a lot to say and mm-hmm. some things were surprising. <laughs> um, there were some things that, that I didn't expect. And um, so I really wrote the book that, that they wanted me to write. Okay. But I mean, clearly the motivation behind it was you're looking around thinking, hmm, must be a better way, right? Well, the motivation really was that, that you know, a lot of companies want to have a big deal engine and they have pieces of it, but rarely do companies have all the components needed to just really repeatedly win those big deals, those 5X deals. And, and so my whole impetus was to give sales leaders the, the plays um, that they need to have all the cylinders going at the same time so that that so so that the result is not just one or two big banner accounts which are great but really an uh, a sales organization that can repeatedly win those big deals and and so that was my impetus and and um and that's when I went and and sought the opinions of of the people for whom I wrote the book okay so tell people what a 5x deal is and you're talking about that as order value I I assume it's five times your normal your normal value, but is it is it order value or sort of your lifetime value of the account? Yeah, that's a great question, and actually, I, I get asked that question a lot. Um, and it's really just for people to understand that we're talking about bigger deals. So, five times your average deal size is how I define it in the book. And the the why that's important is because when you have a big deal, things happen differently. It's it's they're not. You know, your normal sales process, you will use it, but it is not sufficient. You have to do extra stuff. You have to do extra strategy work. Big deals are messy. You have to move forward and then you sometimes move back and Mm -hmm. then you move forward again. Um, So that, so, so I was really trying to, to come across with the five X is that these are big, big, you know, if your average deal size is a hundred thousand dollars and a bit, a five X deal for you might be a half million. Um, but, but more importantly than the actual value is that you really need to do things differently uh, oh, when you're talking okay. about those big, big accounts. Like my, my friend and colleague, Barbara Weaver-Smith, calls them mm-hmm. whales. Whales, right. <laughs> and Barbara's been on the show a couple of times. Um, yeah. Well, awesome. so, so let's dig into that a little bit because is, is your thought and your experience such that you say, okay, well, gosh, they got a lot of companies out there that are you know, doing $100,000 deals and – the half million dollar deal ex- opportunity exists with those same customers they're selling to. They're just not taking advantage of it. I mean, is that that's sort of the thrust for the book, or is it more? Um, yeah, you need to sort of reorient yourself, pick out a new ICP. Maybe you're not addressing right now. People have higher potential, or is it both? It's really both because you know it depends on on your focus as as a company. A lot of companies focus you know on new logos, new opportunities, and and um, and if you really have sort of a culture that talks about supports, you know, has a methodology around big deals, then the salespeople know how to spot them 
uh, to spot those kinds of opportunities. And then that's when they start doing things differently. But also you could have some really big customers that have the capability to be 5X what they are for your company today. And so maybe those are handled by an account manager. Maybe they're handled by the same salesperson handling both new logo and existing customers. So it's it's really both, but it really starts when you sort of identify that opportunity. We, we think we have a big opportunity here. What do we do? So identify the opportunity, or in some cases, and you address this in the book, is, is really sort of identify the imperative to, to start talking and, and out looking for bigger deals. I mean, I think that this yes. is, because I think a lot of companies are getting this, this mindset, and I've certainly worked with some as an employee and as, as a consultant. As, yeah, just weren't mindful of the fact that these big opportunities exist, maybe within the people they're already, the companies are already talking to. And they, yes. just, they just have to have the confidence, if you will, to some degree, is to say, yeah, actually there's an opportunity here, and it's, we're going to take a risk and invest in it going yes. after it, but um, it can be transformational if we get it. Well, I, you know, I'm reminded of, of, a, of a, a story that happened early in my uh, consulting career. And I was working with a, a, a client and one of their account executives, Christy, goes on an appointment with a new prospect, big, big company, and believes that she's identified a huge opportunity. So mm-hmm. she comes rushing back to the office, you know, find, you know, bursts into the VPSL's office and, and says, you know, I think I, I've got, you know, a really big opportunity. And the VPSL's says, okay. And so he calls me and says, Lisa, can you just come in and help us just evaluate? We need to kind of make a go, no go decision. And so I remember we had this meeting on a Friday. There was eight, nine people, you know, pulled together. We were evaluating the opportunity. And that meeting ended up going into Saturday because it was complex. There were some real possible showstoppers. But at the end of the Saturday meeting, it's like, you know what? Let's go for this. We think we have a shot. And the team did go for it. I ended up staying with them for 18 months all the way through the conclusion. It was when they finally closed it, it was well over a year. It was worth uh, $20 million to mm-hmm. their company. Wow. And, and it was the biggest deal uh, uh, of its type for the company that year. And this wasn't a small company. And they still have that customer today. They've expanded that customer. That deal, the people that were on that account team, the VP of sales has gone on to huge promotions. Mm-hmm. Christy, where it all started, uh, the account manager, she has survived layoffs. She's just thrived in her career. And because she stayed with it all the way through, she identified it. And stayed with it. And, um, you know, so there's a situation where, yeah, that was transformative for even that big company. Yeah. It was transformative for the people on the account team. And it started with just, you know, Christy going, wow, I think this could be big, even yeah. though there were some red flags. Sure. Well, I think there always are with, with big, big opportunities. Yeah. yeah. But I think for, for Never easy. <laughs> no, I mean, I think for companies that haven't done big deals before and, and certainly for, startups and smaller companies uh, you know there's so many things you learn from doing a big deal um which aren't necessarily exclusively on the sales side I mean, one is you learn how to execute on delivering a big deal this is that is hugely transformative for a company right if you understand yes um suddenly okay we've got this customer we've never tackled one this size 
and you got to be careful it doesn't kill you, right? Sometimes with small companies, you have to be very careful that, right. that on how you how you choose. But and then to your second your point uh, that you made earlier is then you develop these ongoing relationships with these potentially large customers that, in my experience, yeah, if they can give you a large deal once, they'll give you a large deal multiple times. Um, they can be years and years and years as, as customers, um, and usually are, if you can do a good job of supporting them, like you said. Um, and it's interesting because in my playbook, as, as you know, that it includes 16 plays. Every play has a sideline coach. And, and I kind of searched mm-hmm. the world over for the experts that I thought would lend some good expertise to, to whatever to particular play. And um, I'm, I'm thinking, as you were talking about having to do things differently, I'm thinking of Brian Burns, who really weighed in on uh, on talking about how companies have to change when it comes to big deals. And some of the examples he gave were about the compensation structure. You know, it's, it's you know, in a typical company, the compensation goes from January through December and, you know, there's set targets. But when it comes to big deals, sometimes you have to expand those timeframes. And same with, with implementation. You know, companies might have guidelines around, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a pilot project, what they're willing to do with a pilot. But for a big deal, if, you're, if your standard is a 30-day pilot, you may have to do a 120-day pilot. You know, yeah. you really have to change as a company to both land and support these, these new big customers. And if you can get that right, it just opens the door to all the ones that are going to come behind that. And that's when you have that big deal engine where you really sure. have this culture and you have this, this as a company, you know how to, to support those big deals and those big deal customers. Yeah, well, I think that one of the interesting phenomenon around big deals for, for sales leaders listening and even sellers is that, and this has been my experience over multiple uh, startups, is that where we sold lots of big deals, is that when you get that big deal, I'll give you an example. You know, when, and this has happened, I said, multiple times. One company, startup, VP of sales, uh, we are at about a $7 million annual revenue rate. We got this big deal that came in. It was $10 bucks delivered in one year. <laughs> so, so revenues, our basic business. Way more than 5X. <laughs> well, our, base, yeah, our basic business was hopping along at $7 million a year. And suddenly, this next year, it did 17 Well, obviously, we weren't able to go back to the board and say, well, next year, we'll be back at so on and so forth. No, they expect the next year is going to be in the mid-20s. Right. So what happened, though, interestingly, is – and again, I can't stress enough for companies that, that are thinking about this – is that we were scared to death that $10 million was going to go away and, oh, what's going to happen? What we found is that we got better at all of our business, not just the big business. So our base business actually expanded and filled that $10 million gap, and then we got new, bigger deals to take us to the mid-20s where we wanted to be. And nice. And this, these big deals really become – uh, step functions for growth in a company. Yes. Because yes. as you expand your capabilities to, to execute on bigger deals, you get better at executing everything that you're doing. Well, your and stories set. change. Your stories. The, the salespeople can tell the story. They can tell the story about the big customer that you got, and especially if it's a banner name. And then you can tell the story of how you support that customer. It helps for sure. Yeah, and that's how that that's how what you're talking about that step up capability. Well, that was that was part of it, but part of it was we just executed better, right? I mean, our sales processes on the smaller, more routine business became more effective and more productive, and we saw based on what it took to capture a big deal that 
yeah, we didn't really, we're making the small deals too complicated. Uh, and we found a way to accelerate, accelerate those. And I said, we've repeated this pattern in multiple companies. It's just, yeah, yeah. rather than being afraid of big deals, what you want to be, Make sure you have your ducks in a row and then read your book. But it's it's um, you really need to embrace the right opportunity because it will drive all of your business. And it doesn't mean your business is suddenly going to become lumpy with with big deals here and there. It's like, no, nah, it, it's the rising tide that literally lifts all boats. Yes, yes. I actually, Jill Conrath, who wrote my foreword, I think she used that exact analogy at the end of her foreword. Um, so true. And and it's awesome that you've had that experience and been part of that experience with, with the companies that, that you've worked with, because it doesn't always go that way. You know, if one of the things as part of my advances, which is really mm-hmm. the account strategy work that needs to be done by the account team, you know, one of the pieces is kind of actually it comes up twice in in the eleven advances, which is kind of a you know our a risk analysis. You mm-hmm. know, can we support this sales process? Can we support this customer? Um, you know, what are the yellow flags? What are the red flags? Kind of like my story about Christy, who identified the big opportunity. I mean. Some of the 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 reasons why it was so hard for them to make a go decision is because they had to partner with a whole other company to mm-hmm. deliver the the services the customer yep. described their buying process they were going to go through an RFI and an RFP mm-hmm. so just from the get go it was going to be over a year just that was going to happen um and and you know was the team really committed to stay together and put that kind of time in for for something that 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 was going to be so hard and so you know identifying those things early really helps because then you can kind of go, okay, we can do this. Yeah, we don't normally form partnerships to deliver our services, but we can. I think we can, you know, and... Well, sometimes you're forced to. So, I mean, that... Yeah. When you... <laughs> so, again, I spent a number of years selling very complex communication systems, multiple millions of dollars as a startup competing against big companies. And there were times we ran to customers who said, look, the value of your proposal is about two to three x your revenues. Um, so you need to bring a partner in <laughs> who's gonna, who's, who's <laughs> right. gonna, who, who we're going to sign a contract with, and they'll take the risk of dealing with you. And <laughs> yeah, you have to be open and flexible to your point to do that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You you must have loved um, the play about competitive analysis and blocking. And Christopher Ryan's was is a sideline coach on that play, and he he kind of delineates the the points of uh, competition. And one of his points are, um, you know, if you're a small company, you sell flexibility. It's like, go with us because we're mm-hmm. small. If you're a big company, you sell stability. And oh, you absolutely. You'd never want to work with a small company. So, Well, yeah. You know, and I, to your point precisely, I write about that in my second book is, is or I guess my first book is, yeah, a, a client that was small company and they're about five, six million dollars in revenue and they had an opportunity to bid on a $10 million deal to a company they've been dying to get in the door from. And their competition was a big company, just as you talked about it. And my advice to him was, well, what you do is break this up into... 10 $1 million deals and say the first one is a proof of concept because, hey, Mr. Prospect, there's you know, risk in this because we've got to integrate with a bunch of existing systems, da-da-da-da-da. And as soon as they said it, the buyer went for it because the buyer, the point, chief point of contact of the buyer, decision maker is like, 
yeah, yeah, this is going to reduce my risk profile inside right. inside the right. company. But as soon as he agreed to that and he told the big company bidding against my client, they lost interest because they're a big company and they needed, they needed big deals to keep they on going. They didn't want that deal anymore. They didn't want a million-dollar deal. They wanted a $7 million deal. And so you helped your client block. The, I oh, love yeah. that story. You blocked, You didn't just reduce that competitor. You blocked them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were gone. <laughs> they were gone. So it's, so it's a, a great opportunity for you know, small companies. And this is back to a point we were talking about earlier. It's just if you're getting into big deals, you got to be flexible. You got to be creative. You got to be thinking yeah. about, yeah, what is the true value that we're bringing to this uh, to this opportunity and maybe express it in a way that's a little bit different. Well, and the other thing with how you helped your client um, uh, back then is that you made it simple. And, and, you know, boy, every single year, the need to make things simple for the client and reduce the risk just gets more and more and more important. I mean, with 2020 being a whole nother level of, you know, selling teams and account teams understanding that they have to only provide the information that the buying team or the buyer wants. They have to make that information completely digestible. They have to make it simple at every single turn while adding value. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, and so, you know, that you did that back then and that was the reason why you got the yes, and then you just fully blocked that big company. That was genius. <laughs> yeah. <Love> that. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's a great story. Thank you. I've got others. Uh, don't get me started. It's your show. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's um, okay. <laughs> but I really like also this uh, jumping around just a little bit. But you sure. brought the t- word up before team, and I think that again, this is something that that plays in various different ways. And yeah, I read Brian Burns's comment about compensation. I'm not sure I entirely agreed, quite frankly, but... Oh, <laughs> and, that's good. I love that debate. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think there's more real world that applies to it because in my experience, increasingly when you talk about team and you really do have a team working on something, then yes. you're talking about a whole different take on compensation. You uh, are, you so, are. Because... Yeah, it's it's if you bring together a team that's got cross you know cross functional teams involved, you got marketing, you got engineering, and so on, and everybody spends a year and a half on. It, at the end of the year, the salesperson is the only one that walks away with the big dollars. That's, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's a problem because it's not yeah. just a compensation issue; it's a cultural issue. You've cultivated this team, so in some cases, you have to level load the rewards in a way that that benefits everybody. And a couple of my other sideline coach, coach experts sort of, you know, provide a counter, counterbalance to some of Brian's comments, like John Golden and Zena, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and talk about the team and the, and how important it is to to win as a team, and winning means yes. compensation, yes, and recognition. And uh, so it's not, you know, you don't get to the end to the of the nine months, the twelve months, the eighteen months, whatever it is you know, in your world and the salesperson's the only one standing on that stage or the only one being compensated. No, that's, I mean, that, that's well, not a cult. That's not a big deal. Culture. It's not a big, you're not creating that big deal engine. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I agree. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I can rightfully claim that I've closed hundreds of millions of dollars in, in big deals, but it was all part of a team. And I mean, I couldn't have done, couldn't have done any of it without, uh, you know, I was, a history major, sort of technically competent layperson, but selling really complex technical stuff is 
Yeah, they would have been laughed out of some of these customers' offices if I didn't have the right resources deployed and people coming in with me on calls and helping me back in the office, all that stuff. Well, and sometimes we talked about how it's more important than ever to make things simple for the customer and for the for the buying team, all those relationships you need. You know, I think the numbers, you know, somewhere between eight and eleven now, and that absolutely holds true in my experience doing war room work with my clients all the time. Well, um, yeah, to that, that point, my experience is that number really isn't dramatically different from what I experienced 10, 20, 30 years ago selling big deals. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 that number's growing, but, but the recognition that you need to keep things simple for them and also reduce the risk. So having a team really does that. It, 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 you know, you've got subject matter experts on your team, which can simplify things for the customer, but also reduces the risk if the customer sees depth and experience as part of the account team. So, yeah, well, I think, I think to be really, that's a great point. I, and this is something I've been talking to a number of people about recently is, is it reduces the perception of risk. Uh, the risk still exists. <laughs> <I think. laughs> that's true. Good point. <laughs> and, I, and I think that that's really, but it's a critical point to make from a sales perspective is, is yeah, we talk about we know, buy from people we know, like, and trust. I mean, granted, that's sort of taken as an article of faith, but the fact is, is, is yeah, we, we, don't, or we never really get to know our buyers well enough that they really trust us. They, they think we're trustworthy. That's, and that's, that's uh, what we're trying yep. to achieve. Is, and yeah. we're likable, but they don't really know us well enough to like us, and we're not friends. Uh, you know, I think as Aristotle talked about, you know, it's a friendship of utility is what we have with people, <laughs> and which is what you want. Right. Yes. Yes. So I think it's, but it's almost more important to make sure people really understand what we're trying to do. Is is, yeah, we're just trying to give the not, you know, deceive people, but we're trying to create the perception that the risk is low, and and that's as long as you understand what your real motivation is, because you're not really lowering the risk. And sometimes you have to accept things when you're doing big deals, because the customer is saying, yeah, I'll accept a certain level of risk, but beyond that. No. And and to one point, I'll give a story of <clears throat> one startup I was with. We closed this huge deal with this company in Asia. And um, they said, yeah, we, <laughs> we're competing against all these big tech giants. And yeah, we'll give you the deal, but uh, we're going to put somebody in your office for the next year. This could be an on-site, our on-site program manager for you. Interesting. Versus and, the opposite that happens frequently. <laughs> yeah. And because we were doing a lot of development as part of the, the yeah, package, yeah, the deliverable. Yeah. And I know a lot of companies I talked to just said, there's no way we would have done that. And, but we did. And we got the deal and it was instrumental in getting other future deals and so on. So this idea about being creative, but also what we did is deliberately made the person part of the team. And that, but that did reduce the risk for that customer. It sure. did because it's it's just as if your team had put somebody on site at the customer location, which is much more common than the customer putting someone on site at your location. But but it, those things do reduce risk, not just the perception of risk, but they actually reduce the risk. And I think having a depth of te- of resources as part of the team. So you know the account team might include somebody from you know, professional services, customer mm-hmm. success. And if that person's representing an organization that does have depth and they can explain that to the customer, the customer's like, you know what, we don't have all those resources. So you're giving us a team of, you know, 10, 20, 100 resources. That reduces our risk of failing on this project. Yep. And 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 so I think there is a balance there where it's there's some perceived risk. You know, I was just involved with a client 
Last week, I've been working with them for five months on an RFP for a new opportunity for them. It's it's not an existing um, uh, customer for them. And, you know, the whole RFP was all about the wind themes, you know, making sure mm-hmm. we we're only hitting on those things. So, so we went through extraordinary measures to write the our responses in in that way to figure out our wind themes, write our responses that way. We be, we it worked. We became well, a, a ex- explain for people that are listening what your wind theme is. You define it. Yeah, wind themes are really the intersection of your prospects' priorities and your strengths as an organization. And so what they really do is they really zero in on those areas of interest to the prospect. They get rid of all the noise. And the noise being that if you don't have wind themes, the tendency of salespeople, professional salespeople, is just to talk about all your strengths. You know, our company does this. We have this. We've gotten this awards. But wind themes gets rid of all that noise. And and, And so you only are talking about those strengths that match with their priorities, those those points of alignment. And those are wind themes. And, and, and so we did that. As a matter of fact, my role on the team with, the cl- with my client was to help them craft them. And then they wrote out the responses. They've got a professional, uh, you know, uh, group that, that responds to RFPs. They wrote them out. And then I graded every mm-hmm. single response. So I said, you didn't hit on the wind themes. You didn't give an example. You didn't back up your wind theme with ev- any evidence. And and they then they rewrote that sure. response. And so sure. we went through. They became a finalist last week. Uh, you know, was the finalist presentation. So we did four dry runs. But in preparing for the dry runs, I'm going to come back to this this whole thing of of risk. In preparing for the dry runs, you know. We really said it's like our biggest competitor is not the incumbent who was strong, but our biggest competitor is that pain of change, that mm-hmm. perceived risk. Sure. And even though, and I think that's always the two, case. It, the yeah, those two things are related because the the pain of change would also mean the incumbent would stay, but and they're not always the same like that. But in this case, they were. But by really identifying that pain of change and that risk being the number one competitor, it changed how they were going to present. You know, they had limited time. Mm-hmm. So they had to make real hard choices about how they were going to spend that time they right. had in the finals presentation. So yeah. I, I don't I don't know if there's a happy ending in the story. We don't know if we won the deal yet. <laughs> I'd like to say, but it's 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 way more than a five X. <laughs> yeah. All right, folks, we're going to take a short break here. And joining me is William Tyree. William is the Chief Marketing Officer of Ring DNA. And we're going to talk about the Sales Madness Bracket Challenge. William, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing, Andy? I'm doing very well. Very well. How about you? I am very well. Just, you know, trying to stay safe out there. <laughs> That's right. Trying to stay safe. Self-quarantines, so to speak. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> a phrase that will live down for the rest of our lives. Um, so what is the Sales Madness Bracket Challenge? You know, in short, is it is the hunger games of sales thought leadership. So <laughs> if any, you know, for anyone who has ever been influenced by a classic sales book, you know, it's a chance to show that book some love and that author some love by uh, it's, you know, being the judge and jury. Um, it's essentially like a March Madness style tournament with 64 of the greatest sales books of all time. And so you've taken the 64 books and you've lined them up in a bracket. So there's head-to-head matchups. And, yeah, this is not 
serious competition, as I told somebody, it's sort of on the order of, hey, everybody gets a trophy type type competition. But it's very friendly. It's it's you know we're interested in finding out what people think is the most influential sales book that they've read. Totally right. Um, there are trophies, though. If I could just oh, there say, are trophies. <laughs> well, as I said, everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, actually, it's you know, it, similar to other uh, you know bracket challenges, if. You know, you predict the the winning challenger. You know, come close. There's there's a bunch of prizes actually. Um, you know, ranging from a year of Audible, year free of Audible subscription to AirPods Pro mm-hmm. to an instant sales library of you know the final four or the final eight, uh, and a lot of other fabulous prizes. So, yeah. Well, I'm I'm anxious to see what the results are of the first round, uh, which is going to be coming up. Uh, the first weekend of, of March Madness, the basketball tournament. So was, as I understand, just the process is the elimination is going to mirror the elimination that takes place in the basketball tournament. Almost 100%. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and, and by the way, you know, you don't even have to show up and, you know, worry about, you know, other people with coronavirus, right? <laughs> you, you can do this all do from all, the safety of your home. All online. And, and, you know, what's kind of fun is actually we're starting to see a lot of people weigh in on social media on LinkedIn and, and uh, Twitter to a lesser extent. And uh, it, it's fun seeing, you know, people talk about what their favorites are. So, yeah, so Good. absolutely. So people can, can uh, uh, create a bracket, you know, this week and next week and, and then, you know, there's a lot of opportunities uh, to vote on individual matchups or all the matchups going forward. So, yeah, how's that work? Okay. So people would go to ringdna.com forward slash sales madness. And uh, again, ringdna.com forward slash sales madness. And uh, essentially, there's just a big old button there that says create a bracket. And, um, you know, it, just like, you know, any NCAA tournament bracket, you know, or anything like that you've ever done. Um, super easy. You just uh, pick your winners all the way through. It takes about five minutes. And then um, that's it. You're in. And what if somebody doesn't get to it to like the round of 16? Can they still submit a bracket or what do they do at that point? You know, they can not only still vote for, you know, the hot matchups, either one matchup or all the matchups at the round of 16 or any round, but you can also still qualify for prizes. So guarantee we'll still have winners winning cool stuff, um, you know, uh, near the end. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've submitted mine. William, have you submitted yours? I have submitted mine. I have submitted mine. But but are you eligible to win because, you know, you're an employee of the company? Do we have to have that disclaimer? I am so not eligible to win. (laughs) Um, Yeah, unfortunately, but uh, that's okay. I, I think what I get out of this, though, is I just, I love being able to, you know, um, talk about books, see uh, books that I should be, you know, reading. And uh, I, I think we're in for some surprises. Well, I think what we'd like to see too is, is if you're a listener to the show and, and you know, somebody else that, um, you know, you'd like to sort of test yourself against them is, is give them a one-on-one challenge and say, Hey, submit your bracket and let's see who does better. We'd That's love right. to hear you amplify that out on social media. So, all right, William, Thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much, Andy. See you soon. And we'll, we'll catch up with you after the first round, I think. 100%. So back to the theme we were talking about before is the importance of team. And I think the strength of your book is just the process it lays out. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's for people listening, it's not really a, 
um, in my mind, it's not really sort of the nuts and bolts. You know, this is what you do when you're sitting in front of the customer type book. It's this is this is how you create a culture of accountability within an organization, which is so important to to pursue these types of large opportunities. And because with the structure you lay out with the account quarterback and the team meetings and so on, is that that what you're doing is is well, you do a couple things. One is you're really cutting down the BS that happens, right? So people buy their own, the drink their own Kool Aid, so to speak, and <laughs> yes. and that's very very common and big deals, and because there's not enough people challenging the assumptions that are made or the information that's gathered. So so the process I think is is quite important for that, and I think you also lay out with your plays and the advances and so on is is people understand that that getting big deals is really not about superstars right and i think that's really important for people to understand because i think well yes. we, we got to go out and get these superstars to get these big deals and you know i started selling big deals i i had never done it and i fortunate to have a, a mentor in the organization my my boss who had nice. great experience who helped me learn sort of on the job but the fact was that that you know we didn't have that there was almost no situations that i was in and especially when i was building the teams or do we have these what call you know the flashy superstar salespeople? No, if you got if you got the structure in place, um, yes. and you have people who are they have to be very competent. Don't don't confuse it. But you don't have to go out and hire these mercenaries to right. to come in and, and think they're going to be the salvation. It's it's really the your success is really the the end product of the contribution of everybody. Absolutely. You know, I say when I'm doing work with clients, which I do every day, war room work on big deals, um, um, is the team gets it right. The account team, at the end of the day, the account team gets it right, especially if you've got that strong account quarterback. It's backed up by the leadership, the sales leadership in the company, whatever that looks like for, for, for the company. It could be a sales manager, VP of sales, whatever it looks like. You know those. If you've if you've got that those people and the account team, and there's an environment where the account team can disagree, they can debate, they can plan, and they're committed and they're accountable to to seeing it through. They will get it right, and and that's what I tell my clients. It's it's you don't need that superstar uh, person, that one single superstar. The account team can get it done, and by the account team systematically going through all the advances, and by systematically, um, you know, really planning for their success, every single time they meet and do that kind of work, they're just increasing their chances of success. Period. Yeah. You know, they they get together and they do relationship mapping, and they talk about, you know, how who are the people. Who are the people we know? Who are the people we don't know, but we know we need to know? What do we know about them? Who's going to be responsible for cultivate, mm-hmm. cultivating that relationship? Who's going to be the backup? You know, whatever that discussion is, you have those kinds of discussions, and that's just one example. You know, you're you're improving your chances of success, right? Because you're not going to miss somebody, or you're not going to to not cultivate the right people. And then you move to the, you know, actually building the strategy. So having a strategy makes you more successful than not having a strategy. (laughs) Funny how that works. Funny how that works. But, you know, teams really, you know, the teams that I work with, they kind of appreciate that because sometimes the path between, wow, like Christy, I think I've got a big one 
yeah. to getting a contract, a $20 million contract, a 30 million, a 40 million, 40 is my biggest. And I did, I did that with a client last year. It was super fun. Um, but, but, but that path is not clear to people. They don't, it's like a, it's like a, a vortex. They don't really know. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so just by showing them that path and, and going, these are, this is the path and, and these things are all going to contribute to that success. They're like, we can do that. We can do that. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I agree. And I, I, one of the sort of last points I wanted to make, because this, it was sort of notable to me in, in the book is, is you didn't refer much to sort of C-level involvement, maybe VP of sales, but CEO and so on. And, and I would make the observation that for startups, for small to mid-sized companies, uh, if you're going to implement you know, a large account, big deal selling program, is really need the CEO needs to be involved, and yeah. and in the cases where they've been more intimately involved, things work much better because yeah. especially when you have these cross-functional teams, it's very common, especially in newer companies, so on, where political turfs get staked out, and and you know bringing people together sometimes can be more difficult even than bigger companies. And so CEO involvement really important. I'll tell a story about that. Is one company I was working with that we're selling. Big deals, and and um, we had a large account management component to it, as even in the pre-sale, and because we were doing big pilots, oftentimes, and in that company, every Monday, the CEO ran the sales meeting, basically. Oh, and nice. every VP in the company was in it, and if you were an account manager, we call it an account manager. If you're running your account quarterback, uh, if you are that person and you know, the VPs wasn't their department wasn't living up to their commitments, you brought it up in the meeting, you had you were expected to bring it up, you you was you had hell to pay if you didn't bring it up, and then the CEO corrected the problem on the spot with VPs. On the spot. That, what great transparency and yeah. problem solving. Right. But there was that commitment that you need to have to big accounts where it goes right to the top and people say, okay. Yes. We're, yes. We're not gonna I, let we're not gonna let any roadblocks, any politics, any whatever personalities interfere with getting the job done. I agree. Well in the in the kind of the culture part of the book, I I do have a couple of, of plays that specific are specific to engaging executives. And you know, one of the most popular um, um, tools is is kind of the executive communication brief. There's a sample of that in that play, but but it's about connecting your company's executives with your prospects executive teams, and and really what it takes to to um, you know to have those those relate those mm-hmm. meetings and those relationships. What it takes for them to be successful, how the account team has to participate to set that up mm-hmm. for success, and then. Uh, I mentioned the the communication brief. There's an example of that. That's kind of the, you know, capitalizing on that those interactions and actually, you know, putting that in writing and 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 that becomes kind of a really good sales tool that can that can do a lot of things. And I actually work on those a lot with my clients. You know, like on an annual basis. That sure. that you know that kind of thing. Actually, executive engagement is a topic to my other book, <laughs> the Top Seller Advantage. Um, 
and uh, how to engage executives over time, not just get to them. But but you're right, it's it's critical. And it really, that's why I put those pieces in the culture part of, of the sales leader playbook, because that's where, you know, that's, if you don't have that in place, you aren't going to have a big deal culture. If the executives aren't engaged, you know, Maybe not like running the weekly sales meeting. I love that, but not they're not all willing to well, do that. <laughs> we, we, we call it the weekly account management meeting, but that's basically yeah. a sales meeting. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, I think it's, and I think the other thing too is, and this is again to this point, because I, yeah, <laughs> hear what teams are doing. Uh, yeah, with, yeah, we got our play. Our play at this point is, you know, our executive CEO is going to call their CEO, blah, 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 blah is I'll just say reiterate it's so important for that C level person to be so intimately involved with the deal that they don't need to be yes. bri- they don't need to be briefed. And I think I think in small and mid-sized companies starts for sure that's the level of attentiveness the CEO needs to have to what's going on is they really don't need to be briefed. They they know what's going they on. Know. They, they know what needs to be said. Well, they, as you bigger companies, obviously they're further away from it. You got more layers, yeah. but yeah. but uh, you know we have a large audience of you know startup sellers that listen yeah. to this. Yeah, and, yeah. If your CEO is not involved in it, make sure they get involved. But so a side note to that, a little contrary note is you do have the situations where the CEO goes a little rogue. <laughs> I, I believe they always need to be briefed. I believe there always needs to be that pre-call plan. And Steve Hall, who's my subject matter expert on um, yeah, on. Um, Steve, they, yeah. You know, he makes this point. We actually, in his his expert piece that we talk about, you know, the CEO that goes rogue, you know, starts promising things that are completely inconsistent with, with the strategy or the account team or talking about things that the other executive, you know, I, I, I you know, that pre-call planning, I'm sure. just a well, huge. You do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think but I, I understand your point. You're yeah, saying that they know and not, they are not starting from scratch. Yeah. And I just, I think that there's this, I think there's a little mythology built around that. Um, at least my experience, because again, been in this for 40 years and I've worked with tons of CEOs. Again, most yeah. startups yeah. and small companies, most aren't going to go rogue. No, <laughs> some they want, do. They want to get the deal, right? <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, not. They're not yeah. there to show off. They're there to win right. the business. So, what do I need to do to build a relationship with this person? What do I need to communicate? And yeah, you're going to do your pre-call planning. You always do your pre-call planning. But yeah, I've never had a an instance where I had a a CEO I couldn't trust. Sometimes I've had VPs of sales I couldn't trust. <laughs> I have seen a CEO go rogue. Just for the record. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure they they are, but I mean. Maybe I've just been fortunate, but I said I'm. I'm oftentimes more concerned about the VP of sales who's feeling this this urgency to get the deal and make the number. Yeah, as opposed yeah. they to, can go rogue too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah. the CEO that's like, yeah, I'm. I'm more mindful of the commitments we're making here. Right. Um, so right. I'll be careful. They're like at the bottom line. Yeah. 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 So. No, it's it's all good. <laughs> all right. Well, Lisa, we've come to the end here. So tell people how they can find out more about your book and get in contact with you. Yeah, you know, the best thing is my website, which is www.toplinesales.com. I, I did a, a another refresh. I think it's my like fifth one over the years I've been in business. It won't, uh, be, it won't be the last. No, it won't, but but did one for, for this new book. And so um, you can uh, click through to Amazon. Uh, there's a, a chapter download for people that buy the new book, which is the Top Sales Leader Playbook, um, and save their Amazon 
uh, receipt number, they can get an exclusive bonus, which is a full organizational assessment, which I use all the time with clients. Clients mm-hmm. love it. Um, and they can get a downloadable uh, version of that um, for free if, if they can, if they enter their receipt number. So there's a lot of resources. I'm, I'm one of the sales experts on the Bright Talk channel. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they can click through to a couple of those. Um, I'm committed to uh, 12 webinars this year on that channel. <laughs> all right, there you go. So you- yes, and of course, all the topics are, are uh, from my two, from my two most current two books. <laughs> as, as they should be. There's nothing wrong. As they should be. Nothing wrong trying to sell your books. <laughs> right. Well, they're, uh, on Bright Talk, you're not doing a lot of selling, but you're talking a lot about content. So that's, it's an, that's an educational resource yeah. for people. Oh, I know, but people aren't. People aren't fools. They know. <laughs> yes. like, no, there is this slide about the book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, no doubt. But my website really has everything. The other thing is there's a, a pre-call planning uh, guide. It's a two-page fillable PDF. Again, super popular. I use it constantly with my clients. They can get that for free on my website too. That's on the bottom of the homepage. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank and you, Andy. We'll look forward to doing this again. I still have a lot of leftover questions we could have talked about. So, <laughs> excellent. I want to hear more of your stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get me started. Um, so, all right, Lisa, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again shortly. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Lisa Magnuson. Join me again next week as my guest will be Adam Hempenstall. He's the CEO of Better Proposals. And Adam and I are going to talk about the role that proposals play in today's sales environment. And he's going to share some fascinating data-driven insights about how your proposal should be structured, particular information they should contain, how long they should be, and what they should look like, all in order to convert better. So you'll definitely want to check this out. Be sure to join Adam and me next week for this conversation. So again... Thanks for joining me this week on Accelerate. And until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.